Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Murder in the land of buzz. Welcome. This is we've this been is here an for ASMR what, video. Four hours. Yeah, Ooh. something like that. Ooh. Can you hear that? Yeah, I can. can I don't like ASMR. It makes me. It makes me uncomfortable. No, please stop. That's horrible. That's horrific. what about this? Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> that was karma. <laughs> okay, Jess just shook a bottle of vanilla coke. To try an ASMR and got it everywhere. Good job, Jess. And now Zayn has to get up. And <laughs> I'm such an idiot. Oh, my God. Should we pause? Nah, keep going. Oh, okay, we'll just um, clean up after us. Oh, like my God. I'm so sorry, Zayn. children. Um, so, Ellen, what have you got for the good people today? I'm so I sorry, a, I have an exciting episode, I hope. Um, I realised three quarters of the way through writing it that we've just done an episode on a cult. Who cares? People love cults. Do people love cults? Let us know. I love comments. cults. Um, I also love cults. <laughs> I think cults, they're terrible. Cults. Let's talk about the Moonies next. We have to talk about the Moonies. Who are the Moonies? The Moonies. You don't know who the who Moonies th- are? No. Maybe oh, I don't love cults. we got to do that next time. Okay, we'll do the Moonies, whoever they are. Um, so this, this is a cult known as the Truth Fellowship. It's an Australian thing. Ooh. So, Australian cult. Australian cult, and of course, a bunch of them went missing. So, oh, of course. So, uh, the people we're discussing are Chantelle McDougall, who was 27 at the time of her disappearance, Leela McDougall, who was 6, Tony Popich, who was 40, and Simon Cadwell, who was 45. They disappeared from the small town of Nanup in Western Australia and have never been seen since. Nanup. Nanup. N A N N U P. Nanup. Nanup. That's a funny word. None up your business. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, back to the seriousness. So the four of them lived in a rented... They lived kind of communally in a rented house on a beef farm. And I use the phrase beef farm because that's what all the sources used. But I have never heard anybody use the phrase beef farm before. (laughs) Like they just farm... the, The beef is just growing. The soil is really good this year. I feel like I've only ever heard people say cattle farm. Cattle. Or cattle farm, right? It's a cattle farm, not a beef farm. Anyway, they lived in a beef farm. So Chantel, Leela, and Simon lived in the house, and Tony lived in a caravan which was parked behind the house. They had lived in the town for about four years at the time of their disappearance. Um, Chantel was really well-liked in town. She worked at the local hotel and at the fish and chip shop, and she also taught children swimming lessons. 
Um, she was a very devoted mother to Leela. She believed that it was her destiny on Earth to raise Leela. And Leela was a very high-spirited and energetic little girl, and she loved to go to play group and play with other children, and she also loved her swimming lessons, um, although she was homeschooled. She apparently had, like, a, a talent of being able to get on with anybody, even though she was, like, six years old. Me at six years old, essentially mute. Didn't like talking to anybody. Um, and I've changed in no way. But Leela was very energetic and easy to get on with. Tony was also well-liked. He was described as, like, a gentle, soft soul. He worked at the local hardware store, and he would also help the landlords of the beef farm, um, Mr. and Mrs. Crouch, (laughs) around the property, and he also enjoyed working in the garden. So Simon, on the other hand, was a leader of an international cult that believed certain individuals, including naturally himself, were from other planets and had been chosen to ascend to a higher plane and enter the new Aquarian Age. Same. The ascension process is achieved via death, and those who ascend enter a fifth dimension, and once they enter this dimension, I quote, they pass through a purification process, and uh, they, sorry, they pass through a purification processes and descend into vibrating energies of varying frequencies. When a sufficient frequency is reached, one that matches that of the fifth dimension, a new level of reality emerges for the individual, one where a consciousness of love, compassion, peace, and spiritual wisdom prevails. On an objective level, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I don't I was understand. Like, you are saying words, but I do not comprehend. They are English words that, like, I know what they mean, but in this context, I'm not sure what it means. It's like when Scott Morrison speaks. My, mm. Oh, political commentary in the letters. So Simon didn't work, um, but he stayed up all night preaching his philosophy to his followers online, which numbered a whopping 40 individuals. And they were known as, uh, well, the people who were chosen to ascend to the next plane were called servers. Devotees of the group referred to themselves as the Forecourt, and Simon was known as Psy, and the name of the forum was The Gateway. I assume The Gateway into the Next Dimension. So Simon had written a number of books, one called The Call, the, theory, the thrilling sequel The New Call, a series of articles called Rare Insights, and the final book, The Servers of the Divine Plan, which was the guide for the servers to prepare for the great transition, as the world transitions from darkness to light and the birth of a new age following the end of a 75,000-year cycle. I read a bit of Simon's uh, website, which you can find um, on the Wayback Machine, and I will also post it in the show notes. And honestly, like, I've read some New Agey stuff in my life. I'm sure you have too. We are big fans of astrology and other hippie bullshit. And I could not tell you, like, what the damn fuck the man was on about. (laughs) Just incomprehensible. Incomprehensible and just, like, really unoriginal. Like, oh, yeah, and then we'll all, like, ascend to a high consciousness and, like, peace and love and, like... It's nothing that, like, yeah, Heaven's Gates or whatever haven't done before and better. Um, And it was also all, like, it's all, like, oh, you've got to divorce yourself from, like, materialism and your own personality. And once you divorce yourself from... I love No, I like having a personality and I also enjoy (laughs) my possessions. Um, Yeah, so, but it's all, like, oh, get rid of your possessions. Like, don't be materialistic. Just, like, peace and love and serve and everything. But it also has, like, a huge donate button down the bottom being like, donate to old mate. Um, so rolling back a little bit, 
Simon Cadwell was born Gary Felton in 1962 in England. That is not no name for a cult leader. No, it's not. It's not. Um, not much is known about his early years. He was convicted of two counts of fraud for fraudulently using his friend's password to access a computer system and send emails. I assume they were nefarious emails. Otherwise, pretty lame crime. Um... <laughs> Gary worked at a software company in 1986 where he met the real Simon Cadwell, stole his birth certificate, attained a passport in Cadwell's name, and assumed his identity. Love some the, identity theft. Yeah, that's a that's a more impressive crime than just using somebody else's computer to send an email. Um, so in the 90s, Gary slash Simon, I'm going to refer to him as Simon throughout, uh, went on an extended eat, pray, love voyage of self-discovery. He met an Australian woman named Deborah Fleischer in 1993 in an ashram in India, classic, and travelled around with her for a while before they settled in Melbourne around 1997. And oh, shortly after... they moved to Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, because they're fucking I'm not hipsters. on the microphone! <laughs> <laughs> what? I wasn't on the microphone you weren't when on the I said, microphone. of course I'm, they moved to Melbourne. Yeah, filthy hipsters moving to Melbourne. Um, yeah, and shortly after that, Deborah gave birth to a son. So between 1996 and 2000 is when Simon wrote most of his books and set up his website, The Truth Fellowship, where he could discuss his beliefs beliefs with followers and other, other New Age types. So sometime in 1997 or 1998, Simon was a speaker at a New Age conference in Melbourne. Um, Chantelle McDougall was at the conference with her then-partner, Simon Cookerman. Chantelle would have been around 17 years old at this time, and Simon was 32. Chantelle was taken by Simon Cadwell's philosophy and enamoured by the man himself. She became one of his followers. She was so taken with him that in 1998, she and Simon Cookerman went to live with Simon Cadwell and Deborah Fleischer, under the pretense of Chantelle becoming a nanny for their son. Uh, The group lived together in relative harmony. Uh, Sometime in 1998 or 1999, Chantelle and Deborah travelled to Perth for a a women's group meeting. I assume it was also something new-agey. Um... There they met a woman named Justine Smith, who they gave a copy of Simon's work. Justine also became compelled by the group's philosophy, and she began an email correspondence with Simon. Ooh. The interactions moved beyond cult leader and cult follower quite quickly, and Justine told Simon that she was in love with him. Simon was like, sick. Uh, (laughs) Deborah Fleischer split from Simon, and he moved back to England with Justine in tow, while Chantelle, Deborah, and Deborah's son moved to Floriette in Perth in Western Australia. Simon allegedly moved to the New Age town of Glastonbury um, and continued. I don't know how New Age Glastonbury was in the 90s. I didn't, I didn't investigate. Um, I trusted the internet's word that it was New Agey. All I know about Glastonbury is the festival, so. Um, oh, and he yes, continued. The music for the popular people. The, the, the music that other, others listen to, not us. <laughs> <laughs> like cool bands that people have heard of. Um, and he continued to recruit followers to the Truth Fellowship while he was there. Allegedly part of the impetus for moving from Australia was that it had been uncovered that he had plagiarised a fair amount of his book, Service of the Divine Path. Once again, mate, stop copying everybody. Stop, you steal your identity, you steal your shitty book. Um, And also that the book, which was understandably not a New York Times bestseller, yes, Jess, I see your lollies, um, had not made enough money for Simon to pay his investors back, so he owed a bunch of people some money. Honestly, for the investors, how much money did you really think a new age cult philosophy book was going to recoup? 
So later on in 1999... How much um, of this is your fault? <laughs> yeah, you're a bit responsible. Uh, in 1999, Chantelle and Simon Cookerman had broken up and Chantelle went to England to stay with Simon Cadwell. While there, she arranged for a visa for Simon to return to Australia and they all lived again for a time in the house in Floriette. During this time, Simon had a sexual relationship with all of the women in the house and continued up until Deborah and her son left sometime in 2000. In late 2000, Chantelle became pregnant with her daughter, Leela, who would be born in September of 2001. She was 20 at this time. Oh, sweet baby angel. I know. In 2002, Justine Smith moved out of the house in Floriette. She said later that it was challenging to leave the group because they had exerted a cult-like influence on her and that she was discouraged from contacting her family or anyone from her past. She said that Simon was controlling and manipulative and the others were just his followers and they supported him financially. Simon had never had a paying job since arriving in Australia. Also at some time in 2002, Tony Pop... That is so incredibly loud. Tony Popchick came to... Your snacks. Oh, so sorry. Tony Popich came to live with the group. Um, so it's not known definitively when Tony like first came in contact with everybody. It's possible that he met um, Deborah and Chantelle in Perth when they first came for their women's conference when they met Justine Smith. Um, and it's also possible he lived in Melbourne for a time, so it's possible that he met Simon Cadwell and everybody when they were living in Melbourne. But it's not 100% known. He did tell friends that he'd met Chantel years before in um, years before in Perth. So, yes, he lived with them for a time in the house in Floriette, and then, but he slept in a tent in the backyard, not in the house. He was a bit of a nomadic, he was quite a hippie type. Um, soon after, Leela, Simon and Chantel moved to a house in Denmark, which is in Western Australia, um, in the southern part of the state. I got so confused. Not the European country. I was like, that's a big move. Um, <laughs> but they moved soon after in, soon after into the farmhouse in Nanup because they didn't like the bad vibes of Denmark, which had allegedly been the site of a massacre of Indigenous people in colon- colonial times. Mm. So Tony lived around a few other places before moving back with the group in Nanup in 2006. So Nanup is a very, uh, it's a very small town. The population was around 500 and is still around 500. Um, it was very kind of foresty and green, unlike a lot of Western Australia. And it's around 280 kilometres south of Perth. So, and they, they, the place where they were, it was 10 kilometres outside of Nanup, like town centre. So it was quite isolated, um, which the group enjoyed. So as mentioned, Tony and Chantelle had their jobs that they occasionally worked at. Um, Tony had received a sum of money from his parents, reportedly around $20,000 sometime in 2006. Simon did not do any physical work on the property, nor did he ever really go into town, nor, as I said, did he have a real job. He had clients that would visit him during the day. Whenever these clients would come to the property, Chantelle and Leela would go elsewhere. It's not known precisely what services these clients were procuring from Simon or if he was paid for these services. Simon was in close contact with a number of his followers from around the globe. Two of them, Alexander Fomenoff and Kirk Helgeson from Canada, came to visit the property in Nanup sometime between 2003 and 2004. They stayed at a backpackers nearby. They were avid supporters of Simon and passed his books around the hotel. He was also clo- close with Sancho Hickey and Cheryl Plachazic, both from the USA. <laughs> I googled that pronunciation, but it didn't stick in my brain. Plachazic from the USA. Despite Simon's exerting influence, Chantel and Tony still had some contact with their families. 
although Simon repeatedly voiced his disapproval. Chantelle was especially close with her mum and they and talked to both her mother and her father regularly, and her family even came to visit a few times. But Simon would remain locked in his room for the durations of their visits. Sounds like a nerd. It does sound like a nerd. Um, Tony had had some dramas in his life. He came out as gay in 1993, which is, like, crazy for back then. And he'd had some legal troubles with a former partner, but he was still fairly close with his brother, Joe. And as I said before, Tony was more of a nomadic free spirit type, so it was kind of normal for him to disappear and come and go and not be in solid contact for long periods of time. So the first signs of big drama for the group occurred in early 2007. An electrical transformer was being installed on a power pole near the property by Western Power, which is the Western Australia Power Company. The transformer was to be located around 90 metres from the house. Bruce Blackburn, who was an electrician, was working on the property laying cables for the new transformer when Simon came out in a rage to complain about the electromagnetic, electromagnetic frequencies given off by the transformer and how it was making him unwell. Simon had complained to several of his followers online, including Sandra and Cheryl, um, that he had been unwell for some time, although the transformer had not been connected and therefore could not cause his illness. And also you can't get sick from EMF readings from a light pole anyway, so (laughs) that's kind of a wash. Sorry, Simon. He told Bruce on this occasion that he was going to move his family to Brazil to get away from it all. Oh, so Cheryl, yes, yeah, Cheryl Plazacic had uh, been encouraging him to take a trip to Brazil, um, to a place called Accra, and which is where like this chant, this church had been founded in the 1930s, and it was just like a weird. I got the impression that it was a weird like spiritual retreat for people, and Cheryl was like, "You should move here," and Simon was like, "No." Um, he said that a spiritual hopelessness had consumed him and that he would not go to Brazil, but apparently he had changed his tune on this by this time in 2007. Apparently, uh, Simon was so paranoid about these electromagnetic fields that his paranoia went on for weeks. He would bury magnets around the yard because he believed they would divert the rays. Um, as Blackburn was the one installing it, it fell to him to explain to Simon that the electromagnetic field generated from the transformer was less harmful than the one generated from his computer. But Simon wouldn't listen. He came out with his face covered with hives and told Blackburn the ways for killing him and his daughter and that he needed to get medication. Blackburn rang Western Power and told him that he would no longer work on the project because he was afraid that Simon would kill himself. That's how worked up he was about it. So another incident occurred which needs a little backstory. So in July of 2004, um, Chantel's ex-partner Simon Cookerman arrived at the house in Nanup. Chantel called the police about Cookerman and they advised, advised her to take out a restraining order against him. Then a few days later, the police received another call from Chantel about Cookerman. The responding officer, Constable Taylor, went to the property to take Cookerman in and Cookerman was taken to Bridgetown Mental Health Services for psychiatric assessment. On the way there, Cookerman told Constable Taylor that the group, the truth about the group of people in the house in Nanup, that Simon was the leader of a cult and that he had a fake identity. Constable Taylor did some research but never found anything incriminating about Simon Cadwell. In May of 2007, Taylor, who had now become a sergeant, pulled Simon over for speeding on the highway. While checking his details, um, Taylor conversationally asked Simon about his upbringing in England. Simon became visibly agitated and uncomfortable. It's possible that this minor brush with the law made Simon believe that his past was going to catch up with them. 
He was an illegal immigrant living under a fake identity, as well as a spiritual conman, so he was still looking forward to a substantial amount of prison time if he was caught. The next day, Chantel applied for a passport, apparently for Leela. The passport arrived in June of 2007 when Chantel's mother was visiting the residence. Being unaware of any travel plans, Mrs. McDougall asked about the passport and Chantel gave a vague answer about them being concerned about the high voltage power lines being installed near the property. During this visit, Chantel had also asked her mother to babysit Leela so her and Simon could have a night in, but instead they had visitors over, which her mother indicated was very unusual. When Catherine McDougall left the property a few days later, she felt uneasy about everything that had happened in the week beforehand. Uh, in May of 2007, Simon informed Cheryl Plazacic that the group was planning to commit family suicide. The plan was for the four of them to wander into the wilderness, which there was plenty of around Nanup, and Simon, Chantel and Leela would take a quick-acting drug that would kill them instantly. Tony would bury the bodies, then wander further into the wilderness and kill himself. I don't know why Tony doesn't get a burial. It seems a bit rude. Um, so Simon was telling Cheryl, like, oh, we have this plan, but uh, Chantel keeps on delaying. She keeps on pushing it back. And Cheryl, like, who also was a part of the suicide cult, was like, um, it's one thing for you guys to commit suicide, but if you, if you, it's murder if you kill Leela. And Simon was like, kind of like, mm, good point, but also refused to confide anything to Cheryl ever again. Cheryl begged Simon to just move away from the EMF waves, but Simon refused. A little while later, uh, a few weeks later, in fact, he wrote to Cheryl again and said he was so overwhelmed with pain and depression that he did not want to live anymore and that he would kill himself when he next went offline. Cheryl said that she was in a way relieved because she was so concerned that he would execute the family suicide plan and she was concerned for Leela. Cheryl tried to contact Chantel but was unable to. She did not hear from Simon again and was informed that he was dead. Simon and Chantel had spent much of early June selling off their belongings. They gave away their chickens to the Blackburns, who were their neighbours. Their two Dachshunds had recently had puppies, and they put out ads putting up the puppies for sale. A woman named Carolyn French contacted them about taking one of the puppies and fostering the two adults. She spoke with Simon, who told her that he, Chantel, and Leela were moving to Brazil. Carolyn was a travel agent and spoke Portuguese, so offered to assist in the move, but Simon said that everything was already under control. They made an arrangement that they would pay $600 for the puppy and she transferred a deposit into Chantel's bank account. Simon told her to pick up the dogs in late July. On June 24th, he emailed her telling her that the travel plans had changed and that she would have to pick up the dogs by July 15. This would be the last recorded contact that Simon would have with the outside world. Carolyn tried to email back, but they bounced. She spoke to Chantel on the phone and Chantel had told her that Simon had already left. So the man who owned the Backpackers Hotel, Mr. Sunkar, had been, had, he was also kind of a new agey type and he'd written some books about it himself. So he was sort of, <coughs> he knew about the guy's beliefs, but he wasn't really, didn't really agree with them. But he'd communicated with Sandra Hickey and Cheryl Plazacic, who had informed him of their concerns that Simon had committed suicide. Mr. Sunkar had asked Chantel about it and Chantel laughed it off and said, oh, is that what they said? Which struck him as an unusual response to the accusation that her partner was dead. <laughs> On June 24th, Chantel spoke to her mother and told her that they were due to leave in six weeks, that she didn't yet know what her address would be in Brazil, and that Simon had already left, um, and that her and Leela would be following shortly. Tony was going to travel for a while on his own and then meet up with the rest of the group in Brazil. On the 4th of July, Chantel withdrew nearly $4,000 from her saving account. The next day, Tony withdrew 400 
dollars from his in an ATM in Manjimup, where he grew up and where his parents lived. He went to say goodbye to them on the 10th or 11th of July. He told them that he was not going straight to Brazil, that he would likely go first to Alice Springs and then meet everyone in Brazil at an unknown later date. His brother Joe asked him a bunch of questions about his plans for life in Brazil, but Tony was evasive. Tony then went into Bridgetown and sold his ute for $1,500. On July 12th, Chantel made calls to her energy company and to Telstra, presumably to cancel the services to the house. On the 13th of July, Chantel, Leela and Tony went into nearby Bustleton and Chantel sold her car for $4,000. She then went to a pet shop and sold the remaining puppies for around $900. Tony went to the courthouse and gave his brother power of attorney and mailed Joe a copy of his important papers. So on July 14th of 2007, Carolyn French called Chantel to confirm the plans that she would drive to Nanup the following day to pick up the dogs. Chantel told her that Simon had already left for Brazil and she would have to come down on that day because Chantel was due to leave herself. Carolyn arrived around 2.30pm. When Carolyn arrived, she noticed there was still furniture and a widescreen TV at the property. Carolyn commented that it hadn't looked like Chantel had packed, and Chantel responded that they were leaving some things behind and that she was going to Perth for three days before they left. Carolyn asked if Leela wanted to say goodbye to the dogs, and Chantel responded that Leela was unwell and was in the caravan being taken off by Tony. Just before Carolyn left, Chantel disappeared into a bedroom of the house, not in the direction of the caravan, and came back out, saying her daughter was unwell and she might have to be taken to the hospital. Carolyn had the impression that Chantel was trying to rush her out. Carolyn left and was driving back to Perth when she realised that in her haste to leave, she hadn't given Chantel the rest of the money for the dogs. She called Chantel and arranged to deposit it into her account, and Chantel told Carolyn that she had not needed to take her daughter to the hospital after all. Carolyn French was the last person to have contact with Chantelle McDougall. She tried to call Chantelle a couple of days later about the bank transfer, but it went to her answering machine. A few days later, Carolyn received an angry phone call from a woman who was not Chantelle, asking who she was and how she knew Chantelle. She would not reveal her identity, only that Carolyn's number had come up on Chantelle's phone. Carolyn had assumed that it was Chantelle's lady, but it was not, and the identity of this person has never been uncovered. On July 16th, Mr. and Mrs. Crouch went to the property at Nanup to look after the cattle. They noticed an envelope on the back door with a note from the group saying they had left suddenly due to lack of sleep caused by the EMF, that they'd gone to Brazil and that they were welcome to do what they wished with the remaining furniture. A similar note was in Tony's caravan telling the Crouches to do what they liked with it. The house and the caravan were still in good condition. A lot of, like, news reports and stuff about the case talk about how, like, dishes were left in the sink and it looked like they left in a hurry. But the inquest document said basically the exact opposite, that everything was in order, um, that all of their personal belongings were gone, but all, like, the big-ticket items, like the furniture and the TV and stuff, were still there. Um, So, also on July 16th, uh, Joe Popich received a letter from Tony granting him power of attorney. No one from the group would ever be seen or heard from again. So, rewinding a few days to the 12th of July, I wanted to keep this part out of the chronology because it's a little bit confusing, Um, unlike everything else, which has been so clear. So, on the 12th of July, uh, a big number of things happened, and they all kind of relate to each other, but they're all a bit odd. So, firstly, someone from the Nana property made a call to the Western Australian Transit Authority, TransWA. Another unidentified purchant purchased a ticket from the Manjimup Visitor Centre, travelling on by train from Bridgetown to Northcliffe for the 15th of July 2007. The phone number given was the landline at Nanup, and the name given was Jay Roberts. 
Also on the 12th of July, Tony Popich went to the magistrate's court in Bustleton to plead guilty and pay a $300 fine to a charge of disorderly behaviour he had received a month prior after he exposed himself to an undercover police officer at a toilet block in Margaret River. So if you remember, Tony was visiting his family in Manjimup the day prior, and he was also in Bustleton the day after on July 13th. Um, Bustleton is about an hour and a half away from Manjimup, and it's close to Nanup, so it's not inconceivable that Tony would purchase the train ticket, drive to Bustleton, pay the fine, and then head back home. So on July 13th, another ticket was purchased, also in the name of Jay Roberts, although the person taking down the information made a typo and wrote Jay Robwurtz with a W. Um, oh, and same doll. Same doll, right? Me writing this episode. Uh, and it was purchased with cash at the East Perth train station. And it was a return ticket from East Perth to Ta- Kalgoorlie for the 16th of July. So back to July 15th. Um, the ticket that was purchased for J. Roberts number 1 from Bridgetown to Northcliffe was never used. A different ticket was purchased that day, also for J. Roberts, travelling from Bunbury to Perth at 2.45, which was used. Jay Roberts would have arrived in Perth around 5.15pm. From 5.30pm onwards, Tony Popich's phone was active in the Northbridge area of Perth and was used to call a backpackers hotel, a gay-friendly hotel, and also used to order a pizza to Kings Park that was allegedly known to be frequented by gay men looking to have a good time. Not a really, like... Not really lying low. No. (laughs) Not really, like, maybe he didn't know that cell phones could be traced at this point in time. Anyway. What, it's 2007? Yeah. Ah, they knew. Did they know? I don't know. Um, He used his own ID to check into the backpackers, which makes the whole J. Roberts trade completely useless. Um, At 6.35 on the 16th of July, Tony's phone was used to call TransWA. At 6.53, he called NAB Bank. And at 6.54 a.m., a taxi was booked in the name of Tony from the backpackers hotel to the East Perth train station, arriving around 7.09. At 7.02am, another ticket was purchased from the Perth City Terminal for Jay Roberts to travel from Perth to Northcliffe, departing at 9.30am. At 7.15... This is very confusing, I apologise. At 7.15am, the ticket for Jay Roberts that was booked on the 13th of July from the East Perth train terminal to Kalgoorlie was used by an adult male passenger. The ticket book for Jay Roberts from Perth to Northcliffe was also used at 9.30am. So, to clarify a little tiny bit, a person, presumably Tony, um, buys the ticket from Bunbury to Perth, arrives in Perth at 5.15. The next day, he takes a taxi from the backpackers to East Perth Perth Terminal, arriving at 7.09, and then gets on the train, travelling from East Perth to Kalgoorlie at 7.15. Kalgoorlie is about 600 kilometres west of Perth. And then another adult man purchases a ticket at Perth City Terminal, which is a different terminal, Close to East Perth, but a different terminal. Um, from Perth to Northcliffe, which is about 350 kilometres south of Perth. So the implication is is that while Tony is getting on the train to go to Kalgoorlie, Simon Cadwell is getting on the train to go to Northcliffe. Mm. Okay. Um, oh. Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. Yep. Yep. I'm here. I'm here. Exactly. So I'm back. I'm back. You're back. You're back in. You're understanding. You're getting it. Yeah. Do you get it? There's so many trains. Would you like me to answer any questions before we continue onward? No, no. I'm here. It's fine. You're understanding. Okay. Yeah. I'll I'll clarify it a little bit later on if I need to. Okay, great. <laughs> so, as I said, all signs seem to indicate that Simon Cadwell was still alive on the 16th of July, 2007. 
While the detectives investigating the case could not make a definite, definite, a definite decision. (laughs) Why do I always do a little bit of a New Zealand? Um, They could not make a definite determination of which man travelled where, or indeed if Simon was the other adult man who used the J. Roberts ticket or it was just some poor bastard who was actually named J. Roberts. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it seems pretty evident considering that the taxi things all line up for old mate Tony to be going to East Kalgoorlie, then it follows that Simon was the one to use the ticket from Perth to Northbridge, Northcliffe. Um, And it was likely that Simon had probably been in Perth for a couple of days since the return ticket was purchased. The ticket, this is confusing also, the ticket from that was purchased at East Perth train station with cash on the 13th of July while Tony was definitely in Bustleton, some 200 kilometres south, helping Chantelle sell her car. So basically, the 15th-ish of July, possibly, Simon mm. Cadwell goes to Perth. Well, before then. It must have been a couple of days before then. He goes to Perth. He purchases the, re- purchases the return ticket from East, Cal- from East Perth train station to Kalgoorlie for Tony to use in a few days' time. He either stays in Perth for a couple of days or he returns back to Nanup or something else mysterious happens, who knows. Or possibly it could have been some unknown accomplice. They said, hey, we're just going to book all these tickets in the name of Jay Roberts. Nobody's ever going to know who went where. It's all a big old mystery. But I think Simon... I think it was Simon. Um, another possibility was that it was Simon and not Tony just to make it even more confusing, who travelled to Perth and used Tony's ID to check into the backpackers. As to quote the police, they looked quite similar, but if you actually look at photos of them, they didn't look a fucking thing alike, so I don't know what the police were on. Um, It kind of tracks with Simon's history of identity theft, um, but I think that the mobile phone evidence and the uh, circumstantial evidence of calling the gay bar indicate that it was Tony and not Simon who stayed at the backpackers. Mm. So another event connected to the cult occurred in July of 2007. So Alexander Fomanoff, who was one of Simon's followers who had visited the property in 2004, committed suicide using pentobarbital. Kirk Helgeson and his girlfriend Christina Parrott, who in 2006, I didn't mention this before, but she transferred $6,000 into Chantel McDougall's account in 2006, also committed suicide with pentobarbital. Um, And that was in August of 2008. Their suicide notes, all three of the suicide notes were quite similar and they indicated that they were not dying, but they were going to ascend to another plane of existence. Mm. So the situation now is, is that Chantel has not, Chantel Leela has not been seen before this. I don't know what the, defi- it must have been the 13th, I guess, that Leela was last seen alive when they went into town. Chantel hasn't been seen since the 14th of July from Carolyn French. Tony was most likely alive on the 16th of July and Simon hasn't been seen in public or communicated with anybody since early July but was likely probably alive on July 16th. Right. And nobody ever saw or heard from any of them ever again. Weird. Very weird. So, um, but they'd spread this story, of course, that they were moving to Brazil. So nobody was really looking Looking for for them them. because they thought they knew where they were. So it wouldn't be until October of 2007 that Chantel and Leela were reported missing by the McDougal family and November until Tony was reported missing by his brother Joe. So, you know, they were were concerned 
there were concerns from the family. Like, I don't want people to think that because it took a long time. The families, like, didn't care or anything like that. They were just, A, used to their alternative lifestyles and, B, thought they were in Brazil. Yeah. Um, but as time went on, the McDougall family got anxious with a lack of con- contact and they spoke to – they made contact with a volunteer group in Brazil that they believed the um, family was going to go and stay at but were pretty shocked when the group said that nobody matching their descriptions had ever arrived and that there was no record of Chantelle or Leela having left Australia at all. Um, in late October of 2007, girl. police were called to a site where a woman's T-shirt was found by a group of prison workers who um, claimed to smell decomposing flesh in the area. The shirt was seized for for forensic examination, but nothing ever seemed to come of it, and the officers on the scene couldn't smell decomposition. So that kind of avenue of inquiry died there. The Nanop house and property was searched several times, beginning in early 2008, but as the Crouches had cleaned and re-rented out the property after the group left, they determined it was not likely for any evidence to be found there. Still, the grounds and dams were searched kind of over a period of years, but nothing of value was ever found. Someone named Gary Felton, which was Simon Cadwell's real name, checked into Emu Park Caravan Park um, in February of 2011. The person said he was a top tourist member, which is a network of holiday parks around Australia that you can join and like get discounts and stuff. Top tourist parks told police that there was no member named Gary Felton and the police looked at every single person in Australia named Gary Felton and ruled them out as the person who checked into the caravan park. Wow. Every single... How many people do you think are named Gary Felton in Australia? It's got to be a few. Um, Since the group was suspected to travel to Brazil, the investigation was quickly escalated to an international scale. Interpol listed Chantelle, Leela and Tony as missing and Simon Cadwell as the suspect. There was also a couple of days after they went missing, there was like a plane crash, a plane that was coming from another country into Brazil, uh, crashed into a into a road and then into a service station and caught on fire. Um, but they they investigated and nobody, even though they couldn't, I don't want to say this. No one matched the description? No one matched the descriptions on the name, but also the plane burnt up, so they couldn't identify yeah. visually. Because it is possible if they did leave the country, they could have left the country under a false name. Yeah. So just because the names didn't match, the manifest doesn't necessarily mean... Or would they mean... have had, like, the ages and sexes of the... Um... Yeah, but I mean, if you say, like, a 27-year-old woman, a 45-year-old man, and a 6-year-old girl, it could have been any person on that plane, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but the police were pretty sure that they had never left Australia, so it was kind of like a, mm, we may never know, but also probably not. Um... I want to know the end. What's going What's going on? I knew. So, despite a thorough ongoing investigation led by Senior Sergeant Greg Balfour, no evidence of the four has ever turned up. None of their bank accounts or their phones have been used since July of 2007. There's no, been no movement on any of their passports, no records with Centrelink, Medicare, any telecommunications or utility providers, no banks, no airlines or transport companies, and no trace of them ever arriving or doing anything to do with Brazil. Weird. So the inquest was undertaken in December of 2017, so 10 years later. Um, In addition to all the evidence I've talked about here, the coroner received testimony from Dr Chris Geeson, who was a police officer and behavioural analyst with the West Australia Police Major Crimes Division. It was her opinion that it was possible that Simon had committed suicide. 
If he was still alive and living under a different stolen identity, she would assume him to emerge as a spiritual leader again under this new identity. She thought that if Simon didn't kill himself, it would undermine his credibility as a spiritual leader and that he was too narcissistic to risk that. On top of that... Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. On top of that, there was a bevy of evidence from his friends and followers that he, he had grown to be depressed, paranoid and troubled in the weeks and months leading up to his disappearance. She believed that it was also likely that Chantelle had killed herself, taking into account how easily led she was by Simon and by how much she believed in his teachings, that death was not actually death but a path to a new dimension. The fact that she never touched her bank account nor contacted her family again added weight to that hypothesis. She also believed, based on Tony's belief in Simon's teaching, teachings and the fact that he gave his brother power of attorney and mailed himself all the important documents, that he also likely committed suicide. Tony, this is a bit weird. So Tony, Chantel and Simon all uh, had been prescribed different like medications at different times and the police believe that they'd stockpiled these drugs in order to like save up and use. But the police also investigated Medicare records and it didn't seem like that, that that's what they'd done. Like there was no like really suspicious activity with Medicare, but they were still kind of operating under the assumption that because they had access to all of this medication, they'd um just saved it up to use in their group suicide. Yeah. Um, also, the the fact that the followers of the cult from Canada had also committed do- suicide by drug overdose um, supported that theory. Dr. Giesen did conceive that if they were still alive, Simon had enough control over Tony and Chantel to prevent them from ever contacting their families again. Her final findings were that Chantel and Leela were almost certainly dead, Tony was likely dead, and Simon was also likely dead, with the caveat that he had the history of stealing identities, so he was the most likely to be alive. Sergeant Balfour presented evidence that supported both the suicide and the still-alive-but-disappeared-on-purpose theories. His evidence for their deaths included the lack of contact with their families, uh, no institutional recordings of them for the past 10 years, their beliefs, and Simon's remarks to Cheryl Pazarczyk about a family suicide. His evidence for the alternative included the propensity of the group to live apart from mainstream Australia, Simon's influence over Chantel and Tony, um, Simon's history of disappearing the country, the acquisition of a large sum of money from the sale of their belongings, which they wouldn't need if they were just going to kill themselves, Um, and all the deceptions they had undertaken in the months prior, not just to do with Simon's identity, but lying about going to Brazil, the J. Roberts situation, Chantel not telling Mr. Sunkar that Simon hadn't committed suicide when asked, etc. The coroner added that he did not believe the group would continue with the big deception about Brazil if they just intended to commit suicide. He thought that it was a likely ruse to cover them, or that it was possible that it was a ruse to cover them relocating elsewhere in Australia. He also noted that Alexander Fomanoff, Kirk Helgeson and Christina Parrott had left suicide notes when the group apparently did not. While he agreed that Simon had significant influence over Tony and Chantel, he pointed out that they both, particularly Chantel, continued to communicate with their families against his wishes. In the end, the coroner stated that there was reasonable grounds to believe that Chantel, Leela and Tony were dead and evidence to support the conclusion that Simon was also dead. He could not be satisfied to the required standard of proof that any one of them was dead, but nor could he conclude that any of them were still alive. So basically it was a huge waste of time. Not really. Um, It synthesised a lot of the information and evidence that had occurred and a lot of the findings especially about all the times the travel times and the ticket times and stuff like that were not known until just before um the inquest Mm. 
So there's been no new evidence as to the whereabouts of Chantelle, Leela, Tony or Simon since the inquest. Um, Catherine and Jim McDougall, McDougal, who are Chantelle's parents, believe that there is a possibility that Leela and Chantelle are still alive. Um, a number of people... Mm. Sorry? No, no, but it's just like, well, you would. If you didn't have you definitive would. If you proof had no that your proof. kid and your grandchild was dead, then you're going to hold to the hope that they're still alive. Exactly. Oh, God, those poor people. And um, so a few people on the, in the online New Age esoteric philosophy world had had dealings with Simon Cadwell, and he had quite a negative reputation. Um, people thought he was a con man um, and that he had a history of, like, inappropriate behaviour with young women, which, like, shock. Um, and that basically, you know, he was not... He was not the spiritual man he pointed himself out to be. So a lot of his followers who eventually met him or got closer to him realised that he was just kind of faking it. And that's basically the end. That's so unsatisfying. So unsatisfying. I mean, I think that... I feel like they are all dead. I think that Chantelle and Leela were probably either... I don't know. I don't know. Because a little part of me is like Chantelle, even though she was a part of the suicide cult, she did try and delay the plans that Simon had made. I don't know if she believed that they were really going to Brazil or if it was a cover for a suicide or if it was a cover for like, oh, we're moving somewhere else. I also have a lot of questions about like... You know. The thing is... Yeah. Like, if you were... If I were the leader of a cult... Yes. Would you do it... If Would you commit suicide in secret? Like, if you were going to? If you were going to this ethereal, like, yeah. other plane of existence, why would you hide it? Yeah, you would want your followers to know. But maybe... Yeah. My theory is, is that he did talk to Alexander, Kirk, and... um. Christina and Mm. they I I feel like that's an avenue that I mean obviously I don't really know fully what the police did investigate but the fact that they committed suicide on the same month that they disappeared it seems to me well Alexander committed suicide that month and then Kirk and Christina committed suicide a year later but it seems to me like they knew they had some information that that's what you know their leader was going to do so they followed suit um possibly Maybe they were closer to Simon. Maybe they knew more than they were letting on. Um, Sandra and Cheryl were just... They were also close with them but and also knew about the suicide plans, but obviously they didn't go along with anything or know anything, so I don't know. Because as you say, if you're the leader of a doomsday suicide cult, you let people know when the suicide's going down. You want to show yeah. people that that's when it's happening. Mm, interesting. The other thing is that the thing about Gar- the Gary Felton that checked into a caravan park in 2011, I mean, I think it's amazing that the police investigated so many people named Gary Felton, but, like, would Simon really use his real name? Mm, yeah, I f- think that's unlikely. I think it's unlikely too, but, you're like, if it was nobody else named Gary in Australia, who else could it be? Unless there are just some mm. Gary Feltons wandering around unchecked. Interesting. But having said that... You know how I don't like an unsolved mystery. You don't like an unsolved mystery, whereas I love an unsolved mystery. The possibilities um, are endless. Um, but yes, I do think that Chantal and Leela are definitely dead. Tony is probably dead. 
um, he his phone was apparently tracked going from the East Perth train station to Kalgoorlie, but then they never never had any activity in Kalgoorlie or anything like that. So who knows? Um, Simon also there there is a there was a theory and a possibility that you know how I said they arranged for a passport for Leela. That yeah. some people think that the passport was actually for Simon and it was under a false identity, so he fled the country and left the other three, basically. I wouldn't put him past him. I wouldn't put it past him either. Obviously, he knows how to steal an identity, so it wouldn't be that difficult for him. Also, he was cunt, so, you know, that yeah. too. He would also... Um, I only heard... I feel weird repeating this. I only heard this in the Case File episode. So I listened to the Case File episode. I've already told you this. But some of the information in the Case File episode and some of the information that I looked at were different. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know what is the real truth. Um, the in Case File we trust a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, I would never be like, I'm better at research than the actual team of researchers and journalists that work on Case File. Um, but I... The, the inquest hadn't been finalized by the time the case file episode came out so it's possible that you know just other information it's just different information yeah but they said that um simon what i read was that simon never went into town but they said that simon would follow chantelle while she was at work and like sit in the car and watch her at work and didn't like her having any you know relationship with the outside world so i have no doubt that he was controlling and you know a literal leader of a cult Weird. Okay. Super weird. Good one. I think that, uh, sorry to keep on hammering on, I think that if they are dead, it is possibility that their remains will be found somewhere. I hope so. Yeah. I would like their their family to have some closure. I want some closure. God. Because Kim... Poor family. Like, imagine your daughter and your grandchild. Yeah. Like, that's just cooked. Catherine and Jim still, like, actively... There is still an active investigation. The case isn't closed. There is still an active investigation. And Catherine and Jim are very big proponents of and it'll never bringing be over them them. back. No, it'll never be Not over until. them. Not until they have some closure. But yeah, so that is the Truth Fellowship. The Truth Fellowship. Well, good job, Ellen. Thanks. As always. No worries. Stunning work. Anytime. Uh, hope you enjoyed it, Patreons. I hope you uh, did You too, can Patreons. suggest cases, cases for cases. us to do. Cases. <laughs> Uh, lovely Lily told us to do Fred and Rosemary West and did that and we will never recover. Um, so you can contact us here on Patreon. You can email us at murderintheland.com. Make sure if you're on Instagram, hit us up. Our Instagram is lit. We have so many great fans who interact with us. There's a lovely girl called Claire who she put up a meme yesterday and she's like waiting for the next episode. Oh my God, I saw that. Tomorrow. That was so cute. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Stunners. Thank you for subscribing and thank you for supporting us on Patreon. You know we love you for it. You're the best. Tell your friends. Tell your grandma. Tell your lizard or something to come and support us on Patreon. Lizards in the land of Oz. Our spin-off show. (laughs) No, thank you. All right. We'll see you, Stunners. Bye. Bye. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.